I've got two questions that I'm going to start off with, off with, and it's like we're jumping into the deep end of the swimming pool to swim back into the shallow end. These are the big questions of life. These are the questions of life that you ask when you've got people around having a meal with them, and it's at the end of the evening, you're past all the pleasantries, and you're like, let's talk about something deep. So here's the two questions. What is, this is, this is a, great, a great question, if, you've, if you're boyfriend, girlfriend, if you're man and wife, if you're thinking anything deeply about the world, what is true love? And can it save the world? That's the first, that's my first question. I'm a simple Yorkshireman, and yet we're diving right into there. What is true love, and can it save the world? Uh, do you know that moment, and I can remember this really clearly for me, when you say to someone, I love you, as a, maybe as an adult, and you realize that you think that you mean it. What an, I can remember, where's Jude? I can remember as an 18-year-old lad saying it, and I think when you're an 18-year-old lad, that's not love. It's probably something else that you're talking about there. And, but I remember saying it and thinking, man, what have, what, is, what have I just said? What am I thinking of when you say, I, I love you? What sort of commitment are you entering into? It's interesting, I think, in the world that we live in that this concept even survives at all. We live in a scientifically influenced age when we talk about the way that we look at the world is how we understand it is the survival of the fittest. Um, everything we get, we get because it makes us warmer or it gives us more chance to procreate later on in life or something like that. How on earth does this concept of love even survive? How, does it, how do we still talk? About, how are we still singing? How are the artists in the charts, and I'm sorry that that sounds so 90s when I say expressions like that, still singing about love and the idea that love will still save the world? We kind of have this ideal, don't we? Not just us as Christians, but the world sort of goes, if there's more love, it will change the world and it will save it. So we're going to explore. That's question number one. And you're like, has he, has he got time for this? Has he got the intellect for this? I'm going to bring it as much as I can bring it. What is true love and can it save the world? Second question, um, what does it mean? Is it, I should have thought about this more. What does it mean to really live? What does it mean to have the right to, you know that question, what does it, what am I, what am I going to, how am I going to get the most out of this life, my three score years and ten, what am I going to do, what is the, is, what am I, how am I going to make the fact that I've got this body worthwhile having, when I, when I was growing up, I'm a child of the 90s, I don't know if this brand still exists, but there was a brand that was no fear, anyone, yes, thank goodness, I've said something that's target, yes, is it still, is it still a thing, no, is it maybe still a thing? Lots of things that, that I had when I was growing up are no longer things because I'm getting old. No fear. And it, there were these people that would go around kind of adrenaline junkies. And the t-shirts would say things like, if you're not on the edge, you're taking up too much room or something like, something like that. And they were always doing cool things, things that would make your heart race. And that was, they sort of collected these, exp these people going, I had those t-shirts. All right, okay. So these, the people that go around collecting these life experiences. Other people, in terms of understanding what it means to really live, will go and find themselves. Do you know this idea that you would go, and it's, again, it's one of those questions that in the world that we live in that would say it's, so it's, got, it's got this scientific worldview, there are still, most of the world will, will sort of have this idea, I need to go and find myself. I'll go away to a beach in Bali and, and sit there for a month and try and understand myself better. Like you've got, like you can align yourself with, with the universe or the solar system. That is what real living is like. In our culture today, I think the main thing that we do is that we acquire stuff to boost our identity. 
we add stuff on to ourselves all the time. And it's different in different cultures, but it's things like money, position, social standing. In some cultures, number of wives. In other cultures, number of conquests, things like that. Anything that will boost our own ego. We acquire this stuff and we say that this is really living. What is true love? What is really living? Jesus is going to say something in this passage to the disciples. It's going to, it's going to blow their minds. And even if you've been coming to church forever, some of you have been coming to church forever. I sometimes feel like I've been coming to church forever. It's going to, you're going to read it over again. You're going to read what Jesus is saying, what Jude read out for us, and you're going to go, are you kidding? That's what, that's what true love is. That's what, that's what real living is. That's, that's what Christianity is. That's our calling. And maybe as I'm saying these words now, you're thinking about what was in that text? What did it say? What did Jesus say to Peter? What did he call him to? This is, in on one sense, this is like a really uncomfortable preach. This is one of those where you go, I'm going to tell people stuff that's going to make you go back and go, what, really? I don't know if I, I want this. On the other hand, this, is a, this could be one of those preachers that you can do. This could be the preach, and you go, I get to say this stuff because this is how it is. So listen up. Jesus is going to say something to us in here that's going to change our worlds. And it's, it's the point in the story of Mark where everything turns. It all turns around. It's kind of a critical point. So we're right in the middle of the book. And Jesus is, is bringing the disciples on, but at this point, it all turns because they head towards Jerusalem and they head towards the cross. And it's D-Day for the disciples. And Jesus looks at them. And I th- uh, so I think this, this first bit, I hope I tell it right because I think it's quite funny. I think some of the verses in here are amongst the funniest in the Bible to the extent because the disciples are just not getting it. They're really not getting it. And Jesus says, this is the day when I've blessed you, I've got you, these are my 12 guys I'm going to tell you today how it is. I'm going to tell you today what it is. And whether you're ready or not, you're going to have to hear it today and do what you will with it. Keep in mind, and I don't know if you were in last week for Paul's uh, sermon, this underscore that the disciples need to get it and they're not. Keep in mind, as we read through this text, I don't know if we could put it up. It's verses, eight, uh, verses 11 through to 20. 21, that's great. So read with me. Keep in, keep in mind the fact that the disciples were not getting it. The Pharisees came and began, and also, while, while I'm on about it, look for the, I don't, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. I don't think you can be fully man without having an eye roll. Do you know what an, an eye rolling, do you know what I mean? The, I think there's so many times in here, I'm going to try and illustrate through my reading skills, when I think Jesus is, is just looking at these disciples or these Pharisees and just going, are you kidding? Do you know that way you can do that with your eyes? Sometimes you can look at, somebody will do something ridiculous, often it's my kids at the tea table, and I'll look at them, I'll not need to say it, my eyes say, are you kidding? I want you to spot the times when Jesus must have been, he must have been there in that moment of, are you kidding, with the eye roll. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. I think that's an eye roll, inferred eye roll. And said, why does this generation ask uh, for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples, this is, this is brilliant. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf. Hold on to this. What is this about? Except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Jesus says, be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. 
they discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Eye roll, lots of eye rolls. Do you still, do you still, eye rolls are plenty. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Hear the frustration in Jesus' voice. And don't you remember when I, lots of eye rolls, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied tentatively. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? How much extra was there? They answered seven. He, he said, eye rolls are plenty. Do you still not understand? This is the, so the, the place that we've been to, the stories that we've read through, um, the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 people, and in these sexist ages, they just counted the fellas. There's probably loads more wives and children. Thousands of people disappear off into the countryside with Jesus, just lost under his preaching, and then realize, as often happens to me, we've got no food here. And Jesus provides everybody with food. And then, as if, as if us simple human beings realize we're going to need to get that story again, Mark tells us it happens again, this time with 4,000 people. Same thing, and there is food left over. It's really clear the outcomes are we can follow Jesus here wherever we want to. He is going to provide for us. Into this backstory of, and everybody is talking about this story. There's not, there's not the internet, there's not great TV, there's not other things happening in this world. When some guy feeds 5,000 people, it's all you talk about. Everybody's talking about this story and the Pharisees come up, watch out for Jesus' eye rolls and they say, Give us a sign. Jesus must have been. And he was furious with this. Give us, give us a sign. Jesus' eyes. And, he, and then he goes away with his disciples and he wants to let off some steam about this moment. The disciples aren't in the right place to hear this just yet. Jesus warns them. He says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. He says, we can, I can do these amazing things. This amazing storyline can happen. And because of the bad words of a few people, this this incredible gospel work, this truth, this reality that you've seen, this can be undone. And we know this. We know that, we know how this works. So Jesus used the illustration of yeast, which sends the disciples down the wrong path. He says, yeast, a little bit, and there's that saying, a little bit of yeast when it works into the door can affect the whole batch. That's what Jesus is saying. They're just going to say a few words and it's going to affect everything. The disciples get this so wrong. Jesus is selling this, this fundamental truth that the church is going to need to hang on to forever. A couple of people are going to say about things, it's going to make things really hard. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the disciples say, is he saying this because we've got no, no bread? Is he, say, is he saying this because we've forgotten to bring any bread with us? They, they see the feeding of the 5,000. They're there. They see this miracle. They see the feeding of the 4,000. They hear Jesus frustrated and ex trying to explain himself, and they think this is about not having the right packed lunch. They, that's, that's what they've got. So Jesus eye rolls. Up. That's, that's what they've got from this whole story, the last couple of chapters of Mark. They think it's about the fact that they've not organized themselves and they've not packed a lunch. They are so far off the boil. Do you still not see or understand? Do you have, and this is crucial, do you have eyes but fail to see? take that. The disciples aren't getting it, and Jesus has got these lines ringing in their ears. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Then take the next 
story. It's verses 22 through 25. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've seen this before. I don't know if you've stopped to read this before. I feel like as a pastor, I should know the Bible upside down and inside out. And then I come across a miracle like this, and I do a double take. I think, Have I, do I know this? Do I know this story? Let's read the story together. With the do you still not see and do you still not understand lines that Jesus says ringing in our ears. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spat, had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. All right, so far. (laughs) They look like trees. (laughs) Something's gone wrong with the miracle. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And you're thinking to yourself, all right, did Jesus, was this man too blind for Jesus to fix him? Are there miracles that Jesus needed two goes at? No, that's not what's happening here. Do you still not understand? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Jesus allows, I think, the disciples... So what's happened here is a lot, of, a lot of the miracles Jesus did, everybody's there to watch to see that this man is different. Notice what happens in this story. And if you read on, you'll, it becomes clearer. Jesus takes the man outside of the city. And it, it reads like it's just the 12 disciples that are there. And it's just for them. It's for their benefit and for their attention. And they are faced with this moment when they see a guy who really needs Jesus' help. Meet the guy who can help, the miraculous savior that they've come to know. And yet, there is this tragedy. Because that's what it is. I mean, it's quite funny. I see, I see people that look like trees. It's quite funny. But if you're, a, if you're a blind man, and if you've met the savior, and if you've got a chance to see, there is a tragedy to this moment. And the disciples are all there, and they must be thinking, no, he's not. You've met the savior. You should be able to see clearly. They would almost probably have told their Savior, no, they've met you. They should, they, this guy should be able to see clearly by now. But Jesus leaves them with this moment where they see this guy that was blind and he's met Jesus and he doesn't quite get it. Then Jesus puts his hands on his eyes. And what does it say about the man? I think Mark tells us this really cl- clearly and really purposefully. He leaves seeing clearly. He's got it. Jesus He's working with his disciples. He's saying, I'm going to get you over the line. You're going to get this. And he brings it to a head in this next, in this next little bit. Jesus says to his disciples, so this is skipping on through the text, who do you say that I am? And they say, oh, who do people say that I am? So that's, I don't know if that's up there. Who do people say that I am? They say John the Baptist. They Some say Elijah. And he turns to the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And they get it right. Oh, they're so far so good. They say, you're the Christ. And he says, yes, I am the Christ. And this is the turning point in Mark's gospel. And he begins to explain what it means to be the Christ. And they all drop everything they've got on the floor because it blows them away. Jesus says, Yes, I'm going to suffer. I am going to suffer a lot. The people that really matter in this place are going to reject me. And he uses the word must here. He says, I must be killed before being raised. Again, what he's telling them is, we're going to go back into Jerusalem. 
And it's going to look for all intents and purposes like we're going to lose. And Peter, I love Peter because he says what everybody's thinking the whole time. Peter can't keep his mouth shut at this point because he looks at the life that he's lived. He looks at the, the wife that he's got that he's barely seen. He looks, the, he looks at his fellow Jews. He looks, at, he looks at the oppressive Romans. He looks at all this circumstance and he says, this can't be right. And it says, he uses the strongest word, he rebukes Jesus. He takes him to one side and he gives him what for? He said, this is not the way. This is not how the story ends. It doesn't go to the cross. It doesn't end with you getting killed. We're going to in the back of his mind, I don't know when through power we're going to overturn the Romans. I don't know what is in his mind, but he's saying it's not this. And Jesus, more sternly than that, looks back at him and notice Jesus' choice of words in this moment. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You see, there's a couple of things that we need to make clear here. It's always, I mean, Peter's just beginning to grasp it. He doesn't want to go to Jerusalem, but he's just beginning to grasp it. It's always, in this story and in our story, it's always been about going towards the cross. It's always been about that, and it's got to be about that. This, this is how God chose, chooses and chose to speak to people. It wasn't in an all power, it wasn't fireworks and nuclear war and power and authority. It was a man, broken, humiliated, humbled on a cross. That was how he was going to speak to the world. And it's crucial that that was the way that the story went. Here's the thing here's the rub for us. Because we're like Peter, we can miss this. You ever say, well, Christianity to me, it's about what I get out of it is this or that. Do you know what I mean? You ever, you ever use those sort of lines? Yeah, I like to dip in and out of the Bible. I try, I try and do this or I try and do that. This is what faith is to me. Jesus turns around to all of us at this point and says, it's about me humbling myself and going to a cross and you lot heading in that same sacrificial, selfless direction with me. And the, the killer is... That if we, if we don't get that, if it's just, well, Christianity to me is this, then we can miss this salvation that's right in front of us. And I choose that word really carefully. We become like the disciples. If we miss that it's about the cross, we become like the disciples who think it's all about what lunch you should pack. We become, it bec we become like the blind man. We become like the blind man who thinks that people look like trees. We're that far off the point. We become like Peter, who becomes like Satan, an opposition to the work that's going on because it's always about the cross. Somewhere down the line for you, there will be in your life a moment of cost for this story. So I don't know that we walk with Peter and we end up crucified, although the Bible never tells us that won't happen. But somewhere down the line, this is a story of sacrifice and a story of cost. That's the first point. Two questions that we asked at the start. I'm going to answer them now with all of my intellect I can muster. Uh, first one was, what is true love and can it save the world? He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, 
So the question is, what is true love and can it save the world? He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must. So Jesus already said, I must, I must go to the cross. He says, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And everybody listening to this then and everybody listening to this now is thinking, I hope he's speaking metaphorically here. Please let this be a metaphor for something. Jesus doesn't take time to tell us it was a metaphor. Up until this point in the storyline, we've not thought a lot about crosses. Jesus has not talked about a cross. That's not been in the story. I know we look back and we say it's all about the cross. But at this point in the story, there's not been a lot of mention of crosses. And now Jesus says, I want you to follow me. And to do that, guess what you're going to have to do? Because to us, we look at a cross and we think maybe it's something you wear around somebody's neck, something like that. It's got significance. If you lived in these times, you thought of a cross, you see the guy dragging the cross up. You see the people around the, the Roman Empire, imperial um, places, hanging on a cross. You, you, this, is ter- this is a terrifying thing to say. This is not going to entice people into the story. If, you are like, if you're on the fence about Christianity at this point, Jesus says, well, you're going to have to pick up a cross. There'll be people who walk away at this point. This is a terrifying thing, a terrifying concept, terrifying thing to think about. What is Jesus doing going to a cross and telling us to pick one up as well? Here's a verse for you. God demonstrates his own love. Remember the question we're looking at, what is true love? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do we see when we look at the cross? Is it possible that there's such a thing as true love? There's a guy called Bill Vanstone wrote a book about love. There's a a word that comes before it that that's very technical that I can't even pronounce, but it's a book about love. It's a, it's a solid book. He says this, All human beings who from childhood were depraved of love know the difference between true love and false love. In false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. Your love is conditional. You give it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs, and it is non-vulnerable. You hold back so you can cut your losses if necessary but in true love your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other because your greatest joy is that person's joy your affection is unconditional you give it regardless of whether you're loved one is meeting your needs or not and it is radically vulnerable you spend everything hold nothing back Give it all away. That is what true love is. That is what the world needs. And what Van Stone goes on to say is, yes, that's what the world needs. Yes, it exists. But we can't do it. We can't get there. We are too conditional as human beings. We can't eradicate the need that we have of affirmation. We can't get rid of that altogether. It exists there. We all want a little bit of something back. So the love that we have, if it's going to save the world, it's just too small. It's just not enough of it to go around. My wife's coming, and I love my wife. And I don't say it. I'm not, I, I'm just... I'm one of these, you've, I don't say it as much as I know, I don't say it as much as I should, and she's recently she started to tell me that I don't say it as much as I should, but I love my wife. 
But sometimes, when I think about the reasons that I love my wife, I don't think of myself as a great guy. I realize the shallowness of my love. I love my wife. She makes me Yorkshire puddings. And that has a genuine impact on how much I love my... Gen she makes unbelievable Yorkshire puddings. I grew up with my mum, who I also love, who did the uh, frozen Aunt Bessie's ones. They're all right, but Jude makes them in the oven, and genuinely, I, can, I would tell her, probably, I tell her in that moment, I love, I love you, Jude, when she brings me occupants. She puts up with my jokes. She's promised to stay with me till I'm old. And, and that's, this sounds kind of nice, but it's so conditional. It's so shallow, and it's so, it's so small. Because when, when I think about it, there's, there's a handful of people who I love this much. I don't love... I don't love anybody on my street other than the people that live in my house. I don't love people I don't know. I don't love people who think politically different to me. Genuinely I, don't, genuinely, I don't like them. I don't love terrorists. I don't love different people around the world. My love is so small, and I'm not on my own. The love that we can muster on our own is too small. We need help. We need a breakthrough. When Jesus dies on the cross, when he goes to the cross... He's not, a, he's not a bad man going there to pay his dues. He's not even a good man dying for his pals. He's a perfect man who dies for everyone. The people that, people that put him up there, people that spat on him as they did it, the thousands of people that use his name as a swear word, the millions of people that won't even give him a second thought, he died for all of them. And when that happens, we see love. And it acts as a catalyst. That love that we see, that we can experience, not just observe, but experience and receive, means that we have got the energy to love other people. It gives us a glimpse of true love and what it is. The last thing that the world needs is more conditional love. It's got enough of that. It's got enough, because that's, that's really just like a trade deal. What the world needs, and this is why Jesus says, and it's these scary words, he says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. Because what the world needs is more acts like this. More selfless love. So we know what true love is. We've got a glimpse of it. What does it mean to really live? Whoever wants to save his life this is verse 36. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, lose his own soul? Jesus turns everything on its head by talking about life and gain in this way. I, I want to stop here and, and, and draw attention to a, a contemporary issue in our lives, a way that we live, a way that we think, or a way that I think, and I've seen other people think, it's that the next, the next thing will be the thing that fixes everything. Do you know somebody who thinks like that? Do you think like that? I think like that all the time. If I, when I just get to this point, when I just reach here, when I just get this promotion, if I just had that job, if I was just a bit more popular on Facebook than I am right now, if I was just a bit more this or a bit more that, if I, could just, if I get there, when I get to that bit, like when, when we get our house, when I get there, I can look back and because I've got that kind of affirmation, then I can start to be, then I'll start to give out. Then I, can, I just need to get there. One of my favorite books 
I read Tolstoy. When I say I read Tolstoy, I read him like this. I don't read him like War and Peace. This is, I'm going to leave it in the green room, which is the room through there. This is amazing. It'll take you 20 minutes to read. It's called How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's, a, it's awesome. It's like a parable by Tolstoy. So he, he tells the story of a Russian guy who's just, he's in poverty. He's got no money. He's a peasant. Um, and he, he, re, he writes him so well that you end up, you like him straight away. Do you know that way you can write as an author and you end up going, oh, I like this guy. And he makes good. Like, with good motives, he makes good and he, and he wants to get more and more land. The story is based on that. So he gets the next opportunity, he gets more land. The next opportunity, he gets more land. He goes out into the freezing backwaters of Siberia and he meets this community of people that say to him, you can have as much land as you can walk in a day. So he's, bettered him, he's gone from nothing, he's bettered himself, he's bettered himself, he's bettered himself. He reaches this point where he's like, I could have, you know, the temptation for him was just too much. So he sets off. As far as you can walk in a loop, you can have it all. So he sets off and he walks and he keeps walking and he sees another beautiful part of the world and he keeps walking past that and he keeps going and he keeps going and he sees the sun starting to set and he thinks, well, I need to get back, but that's so beautiful. And he keeps walking, he keeps walking. And then he sees the point he's got to get back to. He sees the sun setting, so he starts to run and he starts to run and, he, and he's running and he's running and he's running and he gets within 100 yards as Tolstoy writes it and the blood starts to spill from his mouth and he collapses and he dies. And then his friends come how much land does a man need? His friends come, they dig a six-foot hole by three foot, and they place his body in it. It's an incredible story, incredible thing to think about. How much land does a man need? Jesus says, there's a better measure of your life than the gains you can take from the world. It's the condition of your soul. There's two words that can really get us over the line or can give us an insight into how we understand this little verse. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, for me and the gospel, will save it. The word life comes from the, is carefully chosen by Mark. It comes from the word psych, which we get our word psychology from. So it's everything that makes you you. All, the, all your little in, idiosyncrasies and your ways of thinking you know, learn from the world, it's, it's, it's your identity. Jesus says, you can build up your identity on the things of the world. You can do that. But in doing that, if that's your journey, if that's all you've got, building up and up and up, if that's all you've got, then you run the risk of losing me. Or, and this is the radical, different, new hard to fathom way that Jesus is talking about. He says, you can forfeit that and know me. Or to flip it on its head the other way around, you could be so blown away by the story of the cross that over time, the things that you build your identity around, the things that make you use, dissipate and fall away and all of a sudden all you can see is me. Why is that the case? The other word he gets us to think about is our soul. Because to know your maker and to serve your maker is to really, really live. Peter must have looked at that journey back towards Jerusalem. And he's like looking back at his lovely wife. And he's looking back at the life he's lived. And he's like, I don't want to go down there. I know where this story ends. 
And yet, as he walks that way, he walks that way with the creator of the universe. That is what it means to really live. He leaves behind more and more of himself, and he gets to know Christ better and better and better. C.S. Lewis, at the end of another really awesome book, I'll leave them both in the green room. Maybe you've read this one, Mere Christianity. It's the very last page. It's his end note. He talks about life like this. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Love your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that, you have not, nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and in the long run, you will find only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and, him, and with him, everything else thrown in. What is true love? Can it save the world? True love is a perfect man dying on a cross, giving us all hope, a catalyst for us to love other people. What is it to really live? To save your soul, to meet the maker of the universe and be willing to throw it all away that you might find him.